When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. So I'm John Plotz, and our RTB guest today is Paul St. Amour, modernist to the stars, professor of English at UPenn, author, among many other works, of the brilliant Tense Future, Modernism, Total War, Encyclopedic Form, which was Oxford University Press 2015. And he's also the world's leading exponent of the virtues of Russell Hoban's Meisterwerk, Ridley Walker. So, Paul, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, John. It's a pleasure um, to be here. It is very good to be here, too, and to see you there. Um, so this is another installment of our Books in Dark Time series, which asks what books we turn to for guidance or sustenance or encouragement. And, Paul, maybe we can actually talk about those different words at moments like mm. these. It takes its inspirations from Hannah Arendt's Men in Dark Times, and in it she writes, among many other things, if it's a function of the public realm to throw light on the affairs of men by providing a space of appearance in which they can show in deed and word, for better or for worse, who they are and what they can do, then darkness has come when this light is extinguished by speech that does not disclose but sweeps that under the carpet, that under the pretext of upholding old truths, degrades all truths to meaningless triviality. So I, I kind of switched up my Arendt quote here because I was thinking about the way that darkness for Arendt is always a political category. It's not just a epidemiological one. And you know, the more I think about that book as inspiration, I think of it as an inspiration because Arendt you know, sees darkness around us potentially all the time. So maybe that is part of our discussion too. Um, but in any case, Paul, I, you nicely agreed to do this, and I sent you a few sort of questions to get us rolling, which, you know, in the spirit of guidance, sustenance, and encouragement, asked you to think about, you know, questions like what books are you reading right now that give you comfort, or mm -hmm. what books are you reading that give you joy, and why? It's funny, when I first saw the the quotation from Dark Times from Arendt, but also just the title, Books in Dark Times, I I thought maybe you were also thinking about Brecht, right? And mm. that proverb in the dark times, will there still be singing? Yes, there will still be singing about the dark times. Uh-huh, um, yeah. And you know, you- No, I wasn't thinking about that. That's great though, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's another one to put in your cap for, yeah. for another podcast. But yeah. um, you know, I think you could ask the same question about reading, you know, and the question of whether one reads about dark times in dark times is a tough one. And in addition, the question of whether it's possible to read at all at a time like this is one that I've really been wrestling with. You know, a, a lot of our friends and colleagues are 
starting Henry James reading groups and, you know, <laughs> tucking into the Decameron or Proust embarking on these very ambitious reading mm -hmm. projects. And I have to confess, I find it difficult to wrangle my brain into immersive reading right now. Um, yeah. And so the question of how to read in dark times at all, much less whether one can read about those dark times, you know, whether you can sort of examine the dental work, the dental work of the, the lion as it's springing uh -huh. um, is, yeah. I think those are real questions. You know, there's so much beta chatter in our minds right now about COVID-19. Yeah. And we're right now in the, I guess we're sort of in the third week uh, of kind of increasingly severe measures. Right, and right at the end this, of March as we tape this, yes. Exactly, and we're in this sort of weird time where on the one hand it's a belated time in the sense that we have missed our chance at containment. Yep. We've missed the chance to really get ahead of this pandemic. On the other hand, in most places in the US at least, we are still waiting for the sort of tsunami of COVID-19 cases yep. at hospitals. And so there's this sense of kind of a terrible imminence yeah. Um, as well as a belatedness. And it's, yeah. you know, the, the air is very much charged with a kind of tension coupled with emptiness that I think is really not, for me at least, not conducive to immersive reading. Yeah. So I just I friend, wanted to confess about that as yeah. a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend Steve McCauley recommended the Patrick White book, The Eye of the Storm. And I actually haven't gone back to it to see whether it's about a literal eye of the storm. But what you just described seems like a very eye of the storm moment, right? It's like you've been through one wall of hurricane in that it's the horror of what's going to happen. But now we're in a calm before the second wall of the typhoon strikes us. And I think that's right. I mean, here in Boston, it definitely feels that way, for sure. Also, Paul, you made an important a distinction in terms of immersive reading is like we've called this books in dark times, though a lot of people have taken that as I think novels in dark times. Um, <laughs> yeah. But for sure, the thing that we didn't call it was reading in dark times, because I think there's no question that all of us are reading compulsively, but we're reading, as you said, the kind of dental work of the, you know, the imminent communiques of the catastrophe. We're reading in a kind of more chronicle-like way um, yeah. all the time at, you know, 250 word gulps. And uh, I personally... I'm trying to avoid doing that. Like to me, that just feels like the, as an eczema sufferer, I recognize that as the itch, that the more you scratch <laughs> it, the more it itches. So for me, I think the immersion isn't so much a luxury I can't allow myself as more like something prophylactic that will stop me and get me off the goddamn Guardian website, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, imagine, uh, you know, swinging from having read a bunch of stories about, I don't know, COVID propagation in various parts of the world, and then plunging right into the Decameron or Journal of the Plague Year or yeah. Station Eleven or the end of October yeah. and all of these yeah. pandemic books that people are reading. Yeah. And I, like, it's all too of them on the nose for me. It's too on the nose. I just yeah. can't. Yeah. I thought I would be able to, and I just can't yeah. do it. I can't yeah. watch Contagion. I can't play Pandemic. Yeah. None of it. Yeah, so Lisa the and, I, and the joy my, are elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I are having a, a, an argument. She she wants me to watch Contagion with her, and I said I will, but only if she'll watch the Lady Eve with me. And so far, we're <laughs> we're at a we're at a standstill. Uh, we're at uh, Zugzwang at the moment. Um, but but on the other hand, but but Paul, just to go back to the point you made about our colleagues. It's one thing to read the Decameron right now, but it's another, you also mentioned Henry James reading groups, because that, that seems kind of different. Like reading, sure. reading Journal of the Plague Year is one way of sailing into the storm, and then choosing Henry James is, is another way. 
Absolutely. And as somebody who is not able really to do either of those things right yeah. now, <laughs> uh, I, I can sort of see how, you know, in, a, in the middle of a pandemic, you might read pandemic fiction, yeah. either because you might learn something practical from it or through a kind of repetition through mastery, yep. you know, uh, mastery of an ongoing trauma through repetition of its yep. representation, yep. or uh, just because you feel it somehow toughens you. Yeah. Whereas to read Wings of the Dove as a group of Victorianists are yeah. now doing, apparently, you know, I, wow. to, to have the kind of, um, you know, receptivity for those long, late Jamesian sentences, right. I, you know, I, I salute anyone with the sort of calm, calmness of mind yeah. uh, to be able to do that right now. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, so then that, uh, that's great, Paul, because that you've immediately ruled yourself out of both Group A and Group B, who are by far <laughs> the preponderance of the people I've talked to. So, so tell us about your Group C. What are you reading? So I have found myself reading a bunch of time travel narratives. Um, awesome. Which okay. is not something that I'm new to, but they have a particular pull for me right now. And I think it started with going back to Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang, mm -hmm. which is the short story on which the film Arrival yep. is based. Yep. Uh, and I think I'm drawn to it for a number of reasons. One is that it's all about language and time yep. and how the way a language is organized has crucial ramifications for the whole structure of one's epistemology, right? So these aliens, uh, because they don't have a kind of sequential or causal linear model of time, have a t completely different alternative epistemology that sees time as kind of radically simultaneous. But the reason that that story syncs up with a lot of other time travel stories is that the thing that you think is um, being remembered is actually in the future. And the film does a wonderfully cinematic kind of twist on this by turning yeah. what it introduces in the idiom of flashback, uh, which is to say the story of the protagonist's daughter and yeah. her death of cancer. We don't realize until the very final scene of the film that it's a montage of scenes that are yeah, diegetically in the yeah. future from in the most future. of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I'm just, I'm obsessed all over again with those kinds of plots. So I really, can we dig down on the arrival slash story of your life question? Because that's yeah. a really interesting one. And we've talked about it on the podcast before because I have an octopus obsession. So I like the heptopods as represent, I mean, the obsession has to do with what alterity of consciousness looks like. And I'm obsessed with the way that science fiction either turns to bugs or octopuses or heptopods in this case to represent that kind of alterity. So I take it that you and I are picking up different ends of that story or that film because the end I'm picking up on is related to the arrival of the heptopod representing a kind of outside. But you're interested in the quality of language like the discovery that there is a language which collapses time is a way that allows her, the protagonist, to kind of have stage an encounter with her own life. Is that right? Like, in other words, it's, it's a kind of, it's a inward looking plot for you. Whereas for me, it's a plot that kind of looks out into the, yeah, into the possibility of a beyond, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, the, the protagonist is a linguist and yeah. because she, you know, learns to be fairly proficient, if not fluent, in Heptapod B, the written version of Heptapod, she enters into a very different relationship to the temporality of her of her uh, her life as a Heptapod B proficient. Yes, which is to say that you know from the moment she becomes proficient until the moment of her death, she's yes. able to see her whole life. And 
you know, there's on the one hand a loss of free will, right? Yeah. Um, as we experience it, but yeah. there is a sense in which she is enacting chrono chronology, I think is how the text yeah. puts it. Yeah. Right. And it's fascinating to me that we want, that we're interested in telling these circular stories uh, that entail the loss of free will, given I think that, that a lot of our ideas about the aesthetic are premised on the idea that it's a space of free play and an experience of freedom. And yet these, these looping time travel stories are all about the surrender of the kinds of temporalities that are necessary for our experience of free will. So Slaughterhouse I, Five would be a kind of urtext for that then. Yeah, that's a that's yeah. a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think what it does for Though me a dark a much darker one, I think. Sure. Yeah. And although, you know, there is this strange kind of you know, redemptive scene of the bombs going out of Dresden back into the bellies of the bombers and being, you know, delivered back to the warehouses. Yes. And all yeah. that, that, that cues Martin Amos and makes him yeah. write uh, yeah. Time's Arrow. But, you know, I think that these stories remind us of something about the aesthetic, which is that it's, it's not just a space for the experience of freedom, but a, a, an ex a space for the experience of the surrender of certain kinds of freedoms and the capacity to enter into something more like interpassivity than interactivity with a text in the name of the kinds of realizations that we have at the ends of, let's say, great novels, where you realize that the, uh, the future of the narrative, that is to say the end of the narrative, was in a sense there all along and structuring the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in one way, those time travel novels are just sort of x-rays of realist plots, I think. Yeah. <laughs> of the strange recursive temporalities of um, certain aesthetic forms. Yeah. So any thought about why those would be of particular interest to you at this crisis moment or this yet site? Yeah, I've been trying to puzzle that out. And I think it's, so, you know, as, as COVID-19 came along and we started having to cancel events, you know, we were going into our Google calendars and just deleting squares from the ingridded month of the future. And to me, it was an object lesson in the ways that we treat the future, not really as a temporality, not as a time to come, but as a kind of spatial image. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because we count on its being there and being a kind of empty homogenous mm -hmm. time that we can spatialize mm -hmm. and, and kind of plot out. And there's, there's a weird way in which having to delete most of your plans and also having to yield up the capacity to make plans to yep. a large extent reimbues the future with a with a kind of temporality and with an unknowability mm -hmm. that i think we we tend to ignore in the name of being able to plan it mm. and there's something you know there's something maybe emancipatory about that and we could think about what the political possibilities that get opened up might be Mm -hmm. to that kind of reoxygenation of the future with temporality. Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting example in that line, the line that goes from maybe Slaughterhouse-Five potentially through Story of Your Life and Arrival is would be Interstellar because Absolutely. that's, I, I don't know if you've thought about that connection because that's very much a, ho I mean, it's confected as a Hollywood, you know, uh, picture story, <laughs> at least. I mean, it has the arc, the familial arc that we can recognize. I mean, that is the travel, the time travel into the past that he undertakes is all about redeeming the family unit. So, 
It is, although I, I think that the, the cool swerve in that film is actually more to do with gender because you think it's the astronaut father's story and mm-hmm. he actually ends up being a subsidiary player in the life of his famous physicist daughter. Yeah. You know, even, even though he's the one who sends her the information from the inside of the black hole about the singularity and sort of allows, her, you know, supplies the missing piece to her yeah. calculations. Ultimately, you know, she is um, at the center of that um, of that world, if not of the narrative. So I, I totally agree with that. The, my main thought about it is just that it is, it's, it's similarly recursive to the other stories we're talking about in that it wants to make that, you know, the, the, the rediscovery of your own family dynamic and your, you know, your sort of your personal ambitions is like at the heart of the, the, the cool time travel aspect of it. It brings me back to the sort of bigger question about these plots, which is, you know, are they just kind of allegories about aesthetic objects being kind of Mm -hmm. self-enclosed? Or do they, in addition to that, have some aperture still to something, to some colder wind, right, that is blowing in from elsewhere um, than, let's say, the, the... interior of the family home. And I guess I would want to pull another older text into this discussion, mm. which is Bronte's Villette, mm-hmm. um, which I found myself going back to also. Mm. It's my favorite Bronte novel. Mm. And one of the reasons is that, you know, it's full, the early pages of that book are full of um, images of storm and shipwreck, mm-hmm. which just seem to be the kind of code that she has as a fanciful person um, animated to to use to sort of tell the story of her life without going into particulars about what happens um, yeah. to her family, this disaster that happens to her family. It's not until you reach the end of that book that you learn that her fiance has very probably died in a shipwreck and that that disaster has structured her whole retelling of her life from childhood. And so although it's not a time travel narrative in the, in the kind of science fiction sense, the, the figural universe of that book is doing the same thing that we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think it's consoling in the way that, um, you know, a work of art that's just allegorizing the autonomous aesthetic right. is consoling. Well, so just to stick with that cold wind from elsewhere, or from outside idea, which yeah. I think about a lot too. Are you a fan at all of um, Naomi Mitchison or Doris Lessing? I have not read any Naomi Mitchison and I have not, I'll have to confess, gotten beyond, uh, you know, the opening uh, pages of the Golden Notebook. So I, okay. I'm, I'm basically a Lessing uh, neophyte. Okay. So tell me so, where okay. to start and tell me where the question comes well, from. Well, okay. So I'll just, I'll, I'll try to say it quickly, but I'll just say, so the Naomi Mitchison, in the book I love is Memoirs of a Space Woman, which is despite the title, not a Star Trek episode. It's like a 1962 novel in which the space travel is imagined as essentially perpetual ethnographic expansion into a mm-hmm. world defined by like various kinds of baffling alterity, some of them simple, like starfish people who think in pentagonal terms rather than binary terms. That's kind of like a starter episode. But then it goes on from there in ways that I find really interesting. And similarly, the Doris Lessing, I'm thinking of the Canopus and Argus, sort of uh, the space fiction. Uh, This is the moment that everyone bailed on Doris Lessing. I mean, it's just like people lined up from... uh, Let's see who, Joan Didion, John Updike, uh, 
Oh, I can't remember. There's just like, you know, dozens of people who just accused Lessing of having gone off the deep end in the 80s when she started writing space fiction. But it's understood as they are cold wind problems. Like the one that I really love, um, which is actually kind of pandemic-ish, actually, is the um, making of the representatives of Planet 8, which is where a, a planet discovers that they are going to, they're all going to die, basically. Mm -hmm. And how do the representatives of Planet 8 understand their impending demise and how do they represent it to themselves and also to these kind of cold-eyed space alien emissaries who are there to witness their demise, basically. Mm. Um, those are, um, like, I totally hear what you're saying, Paul, about the way in which a lot of these recursive speculative fiction plots are allegorical on the aesthetic the capacities of the aesthetic itself. But what I like in both Lessing and Mitchison is that I think they do, they don't escape from the actuality of the aesthetic form as just being this kind of limited space and that mm -hmm. is hard pressed to tell any story beyond itself. But they nonetheless take that challenge of like what it would be like to step outside that as like absolutely foundational for what they try to do. That is like, they take the actuality of their aesthetic status for granted and they nonetheless want the encounter to be, yeah, something truly alien. And that, I find that, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, right, yeah, yeah I just, accepting limits and then, and then sort of, you know, cracking the vessel that is meant to contain uh, you know, which I, which I think Bronte does, you know, through the strange kind of figural itineraries in that book and also mm. the, the counterfactual moments where she says, you're free to imagine if you like yeah. that, you know, this interval of my life was smooth sailing. However, there's no yeah. concealing the fact that. Yeah. Um, or the way she allows you, you know, to choose in a sense between two endings in the final pages of that book, which is really... Right you know, uh, it's, uh, quite, uh, quite a perverse and yeah. inspiring move. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. But you don't play uh, video games, do you? I've played a couple recently, but, uh, yeah. you know, I've played a couple of John Blow games like Braid and Witness, but you know, I, yeah. I I'm not like a multiplayer first person shooter game. I'm like yeah. a depopulated yeah. puzzle solving mist type of gamer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'm just, I mean, I'm a barely a gamer at all. I mean, I think basically chess, Dungeons and Dragons, and and do you remember an arcade game called Tempest from the 1980s? I played Tempest. Yeah, yeah. Um, you just spun a dial and Vector shot things. Graphics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, I'm, but in this genre seminar that I'm teaching, I have a student now who's writing about, she's actually writing about the concept of ludonarrative dissonance. Does that phrase mean anything to you? Like meaning the discrepancy within games between mm -hmm. the fact that they're ludic and narrative at the same time. So they have a story to tell, but they yeah. also have gameplay, which gives you some navigational capacity within the narrative. Yeah. And one of the things that's really interesting is that there is something called the canon route. Do you know this? So there's a lot of games that are essentially narrative structures. Like the example that she's working on is something called Tales from the Borderlands. And basically there's an outcome that is a desired and intended outcome within the design of the game. But you make a series of choices as you go through, but there is a canon route. And if you take the canon route, you can kind of go farthest and fastest. And the thing that I've been thinking about is the relationship that has to, you know, the fact of 
the novel as being a genre of liberal individualism, which mm-hmm. is predicated on that sort of choice making that one would imagine one had when one encountered the optative, optative logic of the novel. Like in other words, you look at Middlemarch and you think, okay, well, there's thousands of different characters here and I can imagine what each one of them would choose. But of course, it being a novel and not a game, you don't actually get to choose, you know? You just read the damn book. So the thing about these games is they actually try to kind of give you both at once. And that is really interesting. So when you talk about like that, two alternatives for the ending, like Great Expectations is kind of like that as well, right? Like there's two different ways that the you can understand the ending is unpacking. But, you know, we now live in a world in which you have these like Ludo narrative forms that give you, you know, a choose your own adventure, you know, like a... That's so funny. That that concept, I think, is related to one that I've recently learned from my daughters, which is plot armor. I don't know about plot armor. Yeah. So basically, if you're watching, usually it's a series, um, yeah. a streaming series, and a character is clearly too important to die. Yeah. Then when a char- when that character is put into peril, yeah. my, I, I, I watch my kids roll their eyes and say, oh, this isn't happening. That person has too much plot armor to really uh-huh. be. Dangerous. It's like too big yeah. to fail. In a way, right, right. There yeah. are too many there are too many sort of narrative assets masked behind yes. this character for the yeah. character to be liquidated. Yeah. Right. And in a way, it takes you know, that narrative investment means that the ludic properties, which yeah. is to say, you know, could anyone die? Yes. Could even a, a protagonist or a second string character be bummed off at this point? Um, have plot armor, you know, and, and it's yeah. the plot armor that prevents this, that gets in the way of the, the Yeah, looting. so that's great. So can I just say that that helps me think about, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the insane greatness of how Thomas Hardy's plots work. And one of the things that I really love, if you think about a plot like Tess of the Durbervilles, yeah. is, okay, fine, the, ti- the novel is titled Tess, so you know it's about her, but then it's always constellating various people who are, possibly could fall in this position you know when angel comes to work at the dairy there's four different milkmaids he could marry and only one of them is tess and the other three have their stories also so in other words the way that the naturalist logic of hardy works is actually it's almost kind of meta plotting where he's making you aware of all the choices he's not taking i think jillian beer calls them ghost plots Mm -hmm. Um, and i feel like ghost plots in a way is the opposite of plot armor you know it's Mm -hmm. like the way in which hardy makes the very status of storytelling itself a little bit vulnerable to the exigencies of life, even though he's committed to having one person at the center. Um, right, and, and there are the moments, you know, like the scandalous moment when the children die in Jude, you know, those children sure. are supposed to be plot armored, not totally. so much because they're protagonists, but because yep. they're children in a novel yeah. that seems to think about generation as an important axis, yeah. right? Yeah, so, right. Yeah, so that na- every naturalist novel wants to show you that it's determinism all the way down, like in Zola or Dreiser or Norris, it's always like, there's always grimness, but, but uh, Hardy also shows you that it's contingency all the way down as well. And that is, it's very unsettling, you know? Oh gives you butterflies. I noticed that you, you've been coming back to Hardy in, in, in yeah. several of these podcasts, and it, yeah. it does make me wonder... Um, also, I think, you know, Hardy is enjoying a kind of resurgence in general as an object oh, of scholarship. is he? That's awesome. Yeah. I think so. I yeah. think so. Um, and uh, there's something about um, our moment that seems to be 
you know, resonating at the same frequency as Hardy. Yeah. Uh, which you're probably better equipped to figure out than I am. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, grimness of the Gilded Age, right? I mean, I think the 1890s was an 80s and 90s, another moment where people were watching widening gaps, of, you know, at a, you know, having, yeah, if you think of the mid-century as representing a possibility of the emancipatory leveling that liberalism might potentially affect, like I think you can see that in somebody like Dickens, um, then maybe Hardy is more like the later period where you realize that, oh, well, you know, the annihilation of one kind of inequality didn't really produce a, a more equal space. It just allowed a different sort of inequality to establish itself. So Paul, like since you and I both have the 1930s on our brains, though you've thought about them much longer and more deeply and more intelligently than I have, like maybe we could pursue that point about the egalitarian possibilities of the present moment a bit, because I've been thinking about the ways in which our present era resembles the 30s in all the bad ways and the sort of Vera Britain kind of ways, like, you know, mm -hmm. that you can feel that, you know, something that happened 10 or 15 years ago kind of broke our society and we're stumbling around waiting for the next bad thing. But on the other hand, you're making me think that the 1930s are also the decade of the common man, you know, that Roosevelt embodied um, this uh, impulse to say, you know, enough of this jazz age lunacy, let's try to think about how you, you know, think of us all in a line together. Like I, I was just watching with my students, um, it, um, it happened one night and I was, mm -hmm. I noticed that, you know, the, the, uh, the bad figures, you know, it's the rich girl who's about to marry this helicopter, this auto gyro pilot. And she says, uh -huh. I just want to get back on the merry-go-round. So the image for being rich there is this ceaseless whirl of the merry-go-round and the auto gyro. And then on the other hand, what Clark Gable stands for is all these people standing in line, like you stand in line to use the shower every night, you stand in line to get in the bus. And that's what makes us rectilinear and common. So that's a nice maybe way of thinking about the thirties. Do you, is that, does that resonate for you at all? Like, is there like a, an upbeat story of thirties solidarity or? Yeah, sure. And I think that, uh, you know, a number of the counterfactual novels that imagine the premature death or de political defeat of Roosevelt yeah. are imagining what would have happened if the thirties hadn't been the thirties. Yeah. Right? So we're, yeah. you know, we're right now seeing this adaptation um, by David Simon of The Plot Against America by Philip yes. Roth. And, and a lot of folks have both read and watched um, a recent adaptation of um, Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle. Yes. In a, in a sense, both of those novels, in addition to kind of relitigating the Second World War and its possible um, yeah. sequelae, are thinking about what would have happened if the 30s had not been the 30s in yeah. the U.S particular right yeah um so there, there's something about um about readers and viewers right now that is interested in the counterfactual 30s yeah which is a way i think of backlighting the actual 30s without having to <laughs> to look very hard at them yeah because i think people are maybe less interested in in actually spending a lot of time in a 30s diegesis you know there's something about about the 1940s wartime that is a bit more is that is exerting more pull yeah i think as a as a kind of represented world yeah yeah 
Okay, I buy that. That's great. And I'm looking forward to watching Plot Against America. I think, uh, well, there's a whole nother Philip Roth discussion we could have. But I, I was thinking about, there's something about Roth that maybe fits into that question of um, what happens in the 1960s when they turn back to the 1930s. Like the fact that Let Us Now Praise Famous Men really is a book, you know, of the 30s, but really only well known in the 60s. Um, that, you know, that in the 60s, people, that part of the back to the land impulse of the 60s comes out of their conception of what happened in the 30s. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, Paul, thank you. This is great. Um, this, you, you, you've prompted many thoughts and you've been strangely optimistic, which I appreciate. That's <laughs> Um, well, I feel pessimistic, but hopeful if that. Uh, yeah. And you, well, you managed to be, you met, right. Ho, yes, I guess that's right. Pessimistic, but hopeful. That's good. Um, and you managed to do that without mentioning any books out of your childhood, which, um, which is, which is where I always go when I'm feeling down. But. Well, when you were talking about Le Guin, I was definitely thinking about, um, about the Earthsea trilogy, which is yeah. maybe not when you had in mind, you're talking about the ones who walk away from Omelas, but I, I, I have definitely been drawn back to Bildungsroman and yeah. particularly fantasy and sci-fi buildings, Ramon, that are also about world building. Yeah. So your point about um, about world building and uh, and story is one that I've been mulling myself in different ways. And I think partly because of the belatedness of the moment right now, there's something about the earliness of the beginning of the representation of a fictional world when it's being established and when the life of the protagonist is just setting out that has been a really important a steadying force to mm -hmm. me in the, in this moment yeah um so i you know i could easily find myself reaching for i capture the castle <laughs> oh my god what a great one i capture the castle yeah, yeah. not yeah. sci-fi or fantasy but you know just such a such an evocative um uh, piece of building yeah that's great or cold comfort farm oh sure yeah <laughs> um Okay, so I'm just gonna say that Recall This Book is hosted by John Plotz and usually Elizabeth Ferry, whose ghost is with us, um, with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy, Fly Away. Um, sound editings by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. We always wanna hear from you and we especially wanna hear from you about your own books in dark times, which you can um, tweet at us using the hashtag books in dark times. Um, and you can also email us directly or contact us via social media or our website as per usual. And finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please do pass it on to others and write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, check out our other Books in Dark Time conversations, as well as conversations with other writers, including Zadie Smith, Chishen Liu, and Samuel Delaney. Um, so, Paul, thank you very, very much. And um, always to talk to you. Always a pleasure. And thank you so much for listening.